0: I'm going to have you look at a whole lot more scriptures than normal this morning. It's essentially a teaching sermon. It's uh, very much a topical message. And so we're going to look at it. Uh, probably too many passages this morning, but that's the way it works out. So hopefully you can stay engaged in uh keep up as we look at a number of different passages. And that's one one reason for me to use the pulpit more because it's much easier not to hang on to my notes when we're turning to so many different passages. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, I think is a very important place to start because it tells us about our human nature and how God made us. It says in Genesis 2-7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So it tells us the truth that humans are made up of the dust of the ground, the elements of the earth, in the breath of life, which then equals a living being. God had a being there, but until he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that soul, that being that he named Adam, had no life to him. So the dust of the ground, the elements of the earth, and the breath of life equal a living soul, a living being. And oftentimes that word soul is, is, uh, I think, confused. It simply means being, whether the person is living or dead. When I was a senior at the Bible College and had Hebrew class, um, Bob Jones was the instructor. And about week two at the most into that, I was the only man standing, or sitting, as it may have been. Everybody else bailed out of the class. I was the survivor. I won, survivor. I don't know if I won or not. Um, You know, I'm not going to be a rocket scientist when I grow up, but I figured out right away that as the only student in the class, if your homework wasn't done, it became readily apparent. (laughs) And uh, Bob and I had a lot of very quality time. I'm not sure I looked at it that way then, Bob, but I do now. Had some real quality time together as a student. Part of what he uh, forced upon me brutally, no, I mean, part of what he taught me was we went through the first, I don't know how many chapters of Genesis and, and worked on translating them from the original Hebrew. And you get the idea in this text from verse 7 just kind of the picture that you see God with his hands in the mud, just kind of forming, God, forming man, making him, and, and picturing the dirt under his fingernails and, and the whole bit. Yeah, I'm sure as a kid you may have had, you know, made mud pies and that kind of thing. And I remember making mud pies and getting it just the consistency just right and everything perfect right before I threw it at my sister. Um, um, but you, you see here the picture of God just with, with very involved in the whole process, working with his hands in the mud and, and forming the man. And I remember, and I have to tell this, Bob, I remember long about verse 22 where it says, The Lord God made woman. I remember my literal translation, and he didn't flunk me, so I guess it was close enough, was that woman was built. Kind of what it literally says, he, he made the man and he built the woman. and Enough of that joke, didn't go that well anyway. <laughs> okay, So God formed the man from the elements of the earth, very active in that whole process. When he had him formed, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul or a living being. The word spirit is often thrown in as well, people believing that there are three parts to us, body, soul, and spirit. Spirit means air, breath, wind, or power. There there are a couple of words in the Hebrew ruach and in the Greek uh, pneuma. We use pneumatic tools. We get pneumonia. We get all of those kinds of things that speak to air, breath, wind, power. We speak about the Holy Spirit. Uh, The the, the power of God. So that's often in there as well. Turn with me to Psalm 146 and and, uh, hang in there because here we go. Psalm 146 and verses 3 and 4. Some of the things that are said just along the way. In Psalm 146, verse 3. The psalmist says, Do not put your trust in princes... In mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On the very day their plans come to nothing. I don't know how many times, it's been numerous, that I've been present at someone's death when they've taken that last breath, and sometimes there's kind of that sigh when the air is expelled and their spirit, their breath, that air leaves their body. And then they are a dead soul. Then they are a dead being at that point. I don't think that Scripture doesn't say at all that there's anything else that lives on. The elements of the ground are there. The breath of life is in them. And when that breath leaves, there is death. Turn to Ecclesiastes. You might keep your finger there in Psalms, but turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Again, I don't like to do this very often, but today it was just necessary. Ecclesiastes 9, look at verses 5 and 10. Speaking of the nature of death, again, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. And then verse 10. It says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going... There's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Turn over to chapter 12. I didn't get this one on there, but I intended to. Chapter 12 and verse 7. It says, And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. I think scripture becomes very clear that at death, the person has no conscious thought. At death, the person knows nothing whatsoever. They have no knowledge. For them, time stops. When the breath of life leaves the individual, there's death. There's nothing else that continues on after that. In Ezekiel, I put this on your outline, in Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, for every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. There is a common belief that our soul is immortal, that that we have a soul, not that we are a soul. And that's two very different things. But we are a soul. We are a being. There's not something else within us that goes on that spirit or our breath leaves. It goes back to God. It goes back wherever. But I don't believe anything else lives on the soul who sins it says and scripture says in Romans 6 that we all sin everybody sins It says that soul will then die well so that's the 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 nature of human beings the elements of the earth the breath of life equal a living being without the breath of life a dead being a dead soul the grave is a place of darkness or pits in Psalm 6 and verse 5 it says no one remembers you when he is dead who praises you from the grave? And it's kind of a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is nobody praises from the grave because they're dead, because they know nothing at that point at all. Psalm 88, verses 5 and then verses 10 through 12. be a little tougher to sleep today, won't it, with all the pages turning? <laughs> Psalm 88, verse 5 and then 10 through 12. In the psalmist says, I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who remember you no more, who are cut off from your care, in verses 10 through 12. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Again, rhetorical questions, the the answer is obviously no. None of those things take place because in death there's no knowledge, there's no praise, there are no wonders. It's a place of darkness. Nothing happens there whatsoever. In Psalm 115 and verses 17 and 18, it says, It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down in silence. It is we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. So I put the question there, what really happens at death? And the short, sweet, to-the-point answer is nothing. It's the easiest way to say it. Nothing happens at death. person has no thoughts, no consciousness whatsoever. Um, we liken it to uh, a deep sleep, which there's no dreams. A um, person goes nowhere. Nothing else takes place. They're buried. Time stops for them. The comparison or or illustration that's often used in scripture is that of sleep. I put New Testament truths and then I listed a bunch of Old Testament scriptures. I know I did that, it it wasn't very good, but again, it was a tough week. The, The term sleep is a common one in both the Old and New Testaments for what death is like. I don't know about you, most of the time I sleep in a coma, you know, just, you know, conked out, seriously. In Psalm 13, verse 3, it mentions the sleep of death. In Psalm 90, and verse 5, it says, You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of mourning. Jeremiah 51, 39, and 57 mentions it. In Daniel 12, and verse 2, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But not only uses the term sleep it speaks of resurrection in the old testament as well in John chapter 11 we won't turn there we could share the whole message from that chapter verses 11 through 13 and others in John 11 as well if you're familiar with it it's a story of Jesus close friend Lazarus dying Jesus informs the disciples that Lazarus is asleep he thinks that Jesus, they think Jesus means he's taking a nap or something He's sick and he needs to rest. And it clearly says in the text that Lazarus had died, and Jesus then clarifies that with them that he he wasn't speaking about normal sleep. He was talking, in in fact, about death. And as you read through that story further, Jesus, as Martha comes out to meet him, Lazarus' sister, and as she's distraught, obviously over her brother's death, and she says, "Master, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died." Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know at the the last day. I know he'll rise at the last day. Jesus had taught her. She knew there would be resurrection. She knew that Lazarus would rise again. And Jesus then began to explain, no, I kind of mean like right now. It's a a fascinating, it's an incredible text to talk to people about if they believe that death is their time of rewarding of eternal life. The scripture never says that. Scripture says that the, the, the rewarding of eternal life takes place for all of us at the same time when Jesus comes back. Ask him what happened to Lazarus. Because if Lazarus, after his death, if immediately upon his death death Lazarus had received his eternal life and gone off somewhere Jesus stood before that open tomb and said Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came out had he already received his eternal life he had to be ticked didn't he I mean ask him you know did did he already receive his eternal life and then he had to come back to to be a mere mortal when they, when they took the grave cloths off, he would have had some things to say. What's going on? You know, I think he would have been royally ticked at that point. Death is likened to a sleep. I believe Lazarus slept in death those three days, four days, prior to his resurrection. Turn to First Corinthians 15 with me. It's the resurrection chapter so much to say in this look at first of all with just verses 20 through 23 paul's just making the argument because they were saying some of you say there's no resurrection and he's making the argument okay here's what's true if jesus rose here's what's true if he didn't rise we're in trouble he says in verse 19 if jesus didn't rise the the joke's on us look at what he says in verses 20 through 23 he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's not talking about an nap. Talking about those who have died. The first, Jesus, the first of those who have died. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul says Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. And he says resurrection will occur, occur in the proper order. He said Jesus first. He rose first. And then he says, rather clearly, I think, when he comes, those who believe in him. And then he goes on and talks about handing the kingdom over to the Father. Look at verses 50 through 53. A lot more of that we could read, but verses 50 through 53. I declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Paul again clarifying we won't all die, we won't all sleep in death. But we will all be changed at the return of Jesus Christ. That's when the last trumpet will happen. That's when the dead will be raised, when Jesus comes back. Verse verse 51 has been suggested as the appropriate sign to place over the church nursery all the time. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. (laughs) We won't all die. Jesus will come back and many will still be alive. And when he does, the ones who are alive will be changed and made immortal at that point. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. I I won't reread that whole passage. Marianne read it very well. Marianne doesn't like spiders at all. And when she walked up here, I whispered as she went by, watch the spiders. That was... That was really mean, and she gave me a look like, don't you dare. So I'd just be an honorary, Mary, and i apologize. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verses 13 through 18 describes the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, according to the Lord's own words, we tell you, those who are still alive when Jesus comes back won't go first, won't precede those who have fallen asleep in death. The ones who have died in Christ will be raised first and then those who are living will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and be with the Lord forever at that point. And and there is in verse 16 the loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus returns, the dead rise, the living are changed, And with Christ from that point on and weeks like this past week won't ever happen again for believers I think it's important for people to understand as well that the time as I mentioned earlier the time of the rewarding of eternal life is when Christ returns turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 death is never described in the scriptures as a reward now you may have said and I have said at times that I have seen things worse than death. That that, in, in a sense death can be a release. In, in a sense death is uh, a rest because we've seen people suffering whether it's with cancer or whatever it might be. Uh, you know I've helped change the diapers on men who had bone cancer who couldn't stand up, sit down, lay down or anything else comfortably. There are some horrible things. I... I You know, again, death doesn't scare me at all, but the process sort of does. I've seen some unpleasant things. But death is never described as a time of rewarding. Death is described as an enemy of God. The reward comes at the return of Christ. In Acts 2, verses 29 and 34, Peter says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. And in verse 34, he said, for David did not ascend to heaven. He says, you know what? King David died and his tomb's here with us. He didn't go anywhere. He just got buried. Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, To attain the resurrection from the dead. Because that was the whole emphasis of Paul. The the, the resurrection of the dead. when, When the whole church, when all believers receive eternal life at the same time. Verse 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship is in heaven. That doesn't mean we go there, it means that's where it's recorded. He says we eagerly await a Savior from there. That when he comes from heaven back to earth, when the, the, the dead are resurrected and the living are changed, He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body because we'll be changed, transformed, and made immortal at that point, at His coming, not at death. So what really happens at death? Nothing is the easy answer person sleeps, no thoughts, no consciousness whatsoever. We are buried and we await the return of Jesus Christ. A person that has died a thousand years ago knows no difference than someone who would die today. Because time stops in death. I know that uh, some of those thoughts may be new or different for some of you and I'd be absolutely glad to sit down without tension, without whatever, just to share and to talk more and to answer your questions about all of that. I know it's comforting to believe as as so many have been taught that death is a time of reward and that we immediately fly off to wherever and are in the presence of the Lord. That's very comforting I just don't think it's true. It's not biblical. That's not what the scriptures say. So again, I'd love at any time to sit down and talk with you about that if you have more questions. So how do we respond appropriately? Four things came to my mind. One is that we enjoy each day as a gift. This week was an all-too-stark reminder that tomorrow is not guaranteed. In Psalm 90 and verse 12, Moses wrote and said, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to account for our days because there's no guarantee of more of them at all. Psalm 118 and verse 24 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's easy to rejoice in the beauty of this season. But we don't have any guarantees of Tomorrow. No guarantee of tomorrow. Enjoy each day as the gift that it is. Secondly, we need to accept the comfort that we find in the nature of death. That there's no suffering, that there's no pain, that there's no conscious thought. That there's nothing taking place with the dead. They're not forgotten by God. Certainly their their names are written in the book of life. But they sleep in death awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, please understand, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. It still hurts. Death is still our enemy. Enemies don't treat you well. Death stings. But there's comfort knowing that the dead don't suffer. There's comfort knowing that we have that assurance that when Jesus comes back, the dead will will, will rise. So accept comfort knowing the nature of death. Thirdly, we need to focus on the hope of Christ's return and on the kingdom of God. And I just repeated the text that we used last week in Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. That's when resurrection will occur. That's when the living will be changed and made immortal. We need to hold unswervingly to that. No matter how much death stings, no matter how many times it bites, We hold to that faith, to that hope that we have in Christ's return. And fourthly, I think it's a highly appropriate response to share that hope, to tell others of the hope that we have, to let others know that no matter how hard sting death bites, no matter how hard it stings, we can't take that hope away. Boy, it can be devastating. It can hurt no end. But you can't take that hope away. And it's not intended that we keep it private. We're supposed to share it. In Acts 4, and verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He's the one that people need to know. In 2 Corinthians 6, and verse 2, Paul says, for he says, In the the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So as we close this morning, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. There's no other way to have eternal life, to be assured with confidence of that hope of eternal life in God's kingdom. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And even though death hurts and we still feel the sting, all too clearly, We are comforted knowing that the dead don't suffer. And we rejoice, Father, knowing that Christ is coming back. That when that occurs, the dead will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. The living will be changed and made immortal and will be with the Lord forever. Father, may that day be soon. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.